The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Leviticus 23. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb a year old without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, we're drawing rapidly to an end in our studies through Leviticus. We have today where uh, this little section of chapters 23, 24, and 25 are talking about various feasts and holidays that God's people were to celebrate. We're going to concentrate on chapter 23, and the next week we're going to be done. We're going to look at uh, chapters 26 and 27, specifically, I believe right now um, we'll be looking at uh, 26, and then we're going to roll into... The Gospel of Luke, starting there towards the back end of July, and we'll be in Luke for quite some time. So if you haven't seen it on Slack yet and you're wanting that ESV journal, I'd highly encourage you to go and put your name down so that way we can get you one uh, because we'll be camping out in the Gospel of Luke for some time. That's one of my favorite Gospels. Um, Luke is our brother who is very keen on the Holy Spirit um, and just what the work of the Spirit was doing in and through the life of Christ, and then, uh, Lord willing, my hope is to be able at some point in time roll out of that into the book of Acts to see how the work of the Holy Spirit continues on. And so we'll be camping out there for those um, two books, um, Lord willing, for um, days, months, probably years to come, actually. So there you go. Yeah, there you go. Johnny Klein, man, my Holy Spirit brother back there. So he's excited, and I hope you guys are too. Um, You can be praying for that. Um, It's good to camp out on the life of Christ. 
And what we're going to see is that all the scriptures point to Christ. You don't just see Jesus in the Gospels. You see Jesus everywhere. And I would dare say that even in a chapter like Leviticus 23, we are going to see Jesus in holidays that were to be celebrated by the Old Testament people of God. Sermon title this morning is going to be called Celebrate Good Times. And the main idea really just comes down to this, that as the sovereign Lord of time, this is who Yahweh is. He is sovereign. If He's sovereign over everything, that means He's sovereign over our days. He's sovereign over our times, our hours, our weeks, our months, our years are in His hand. And so what Yahweh does is He calls us to order our days around Him. For him to be the center of our time, the center of our days. And he doesn't do this so that we might be heaped up with burdens and slooped over with a burden, a duty of submitting all of life to him. He actually calls us to this for our joy. It is joy that we derive when we order our days and submit our times, every aspect of our times, especially our rhythms, our habits, the calendar, the weeks in and out, the months in and out, when our entire lives are given in joyful submission to Yahweh, then we are living in the ebbs and flows of work and rest that we were designed to experience. And when you turn to a chapter like Leviticus 23, this is what we are going to see. God saying, order your life around me for your joy because when I am the epicenter, the nucleus of your life, and you orbit around me, that is where joy will be found. So I'm going to hit pause, I'm going to pray, I'm going to ask for the Holy Spirit to come to magnify Christ because I'm telling you, He is here in Leviticus 23, and then what we're going to do is turn into this very text. So let's pray and ask for the Spirit to do what He longs to do. That's my prayer, Father, is that you would grant the gift of clarity from my lips. I'm asking that you would grant the gift of minds opened to understand the text before us. The text before us seems antiquated and obnoxiously tedious with a bunch of details that appear to have absolutely nothing to do with us. That's the danger, Father, of a text like the text before us, but they are anything but. I cannot make our minds open to understand the Scriptures. I have no power to open our eyes to see Jesus in Leviticus 23. So I'm asking, Holy Spirit, that you would come and you would drench, you would immerse our time, flooding it with your absolute sovereign ability to turn our eyes and our hearts to see Jesus and delight in Him as a result of God's Word preached. Help us, Lord Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen.
there's a party going on right here. It's a celebration to last throughout the year. So bring your good times and your laughter to we're going to celebrate your party with you. Charles, come on now. Celebrate good times. Come on. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. All right, okay. So for, just so that you know that you're very old if you know this song, that came out in 1980. All right. Who was the band? Cool in the gang. They burst on the scene with this song, Celebration, New Decade, New Year, kicking it off. And what were they doing? They were inviting anyone, everyone to get together and celebrate good times. But long before this song entered into American pop culture with its celebration invitation, what we can actually do is go back to our Bibles. We can open them up in Leviticus 23 and see that a similar invitation was given by Yahweh himself to his redeemed people. He was issuing a celebration invitation, and that's what is going on in Leviticus 23. He's calling his people to set aside certain days in the calendar year so that the normal ebbs and flows and rhythms of life would stop and people would concentrate on him, come and worshiping him. In this chapter, in Leviticus 23, God is commanding Israel to come and set aside days to celebrate not only who he is, but to celebrate what he has done. What you'll begin to notice as we work through these various feasts and festivals is that God is the Redeemer, and we can often lose sight of that in the normal, monotonous routines of life. So it's good to set aside days as holidays to remember who God is. Hello, 4th of July weekend. I mean, this lands on a weekend where we are doing this. We're setting aside particular weekends and days to say something happened. It's worthy of note. We're going to hit pause. We're going to take the day off, and we're going to recognize something. If you can grasp the concept of something like a 4th of July weekend, then you are fully equipped to grasp the concept of what Yahweh is calling his people to here in Leviticus 23. The aim behind this chapter was so God's people would be consistently reminded about this truth concerning Yahweh. He is the sovereign Lord of time. He is the king of the calendar. And as such, he's compelling his people to come and build all of life around him. Just think about everything we've been talking about throughout the book of Leviticus. Worship and priests and ritual Food, marriage, home life, sexuality, everything. Now he's saying even your calendar, even your calendar is to orbit around me because all of life, you are designed to have me at the center. I want you to direct all of life to me. For why? Because truly, he being the creator and we being his creation, our times are in his hands. So as we come and focus in on Leviticus 23, we discover that God called for key holidays to be observed. And so what we're going to do really is just take this chapter, and I'm just going to lay it before us in two distinct chunks. One is we're going to walk through these Old Testament feasts and look at what they meant to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. We're going to see what 
the reasoning was behind them and why God was calling them to celebrate them. Then what we're going to do is, having worked through these eight, we're going to circle back around them and say, now we're going to put on our book of Hebrews lens. We're going to put on our Jesus lens. And we're going to work re- rework through them so that we might see how the shadow of these holy days ultimately punch forward with the arm of Christ so that through them we see that the shadow of these feasts, the shadow of these holy holidays actually reaches forward and lands and finds fulfillment in the reality, what Paul calls in Colossians 2, the substance of Christ himself. So first what we're going to do is we're going to look at the days of Old Covenant celebration. That's just point number one or heading number one. What are these days of Old Covenant celebration? We'll look there starting in verse 1. The Lord, Yahweh, he's speaking to Moses again. This is the absolute common refrain that marks off every major section in Leviticus. Yahweh's speaking to Moses. What does he say? He says this, speak to the people of Israel. Here's what you need to say to them, Moses. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. We don't use that word a lot, but the idea behind convocation is just simply this. It's a, it's a gathering, and it's assembly. Sometimes you hear at the end of a high school year, right, we're going to come together for convocation. It's just the gathering of people. So it's a holy convocation. It's a sacred, it's a set-apart gathering. It was a time for all y'all to come together and celebrate good times. These are my appointed feasts, he said. So now it's important to notice that as we work through these feasts, Each one has a unique focus. But while that's true, that each one of these has a unique focus, there is a common denominator that unites all these various feasts. And what that common denominator is, is that it is some aspect of how Yahweh has shown up in the life of His people and proved Himself to be the Redeemer that He is. So every one of these has Yahweh at the center, reminding the people, your God showed up and saved you when you needed him to, because you could not save or redeem yourself. So starting in verse 3, what do we see? We see the Sabbath day, and we learn that the Sabbath day celebrated God's rest from his creation work. That's verse 3 right there. Unlike the other days mentioned in the remainder of this chapter, the Sabbath day was to be a weekly celebration. All the rest of these are to be one time a year. The Sabbath day was to be something celebrated every single week. It was a special day. It was to be celebrated at the end of the week. For us, we tend to think of the end of the week as this day, Sunday, but actually Sunday is the beginning of the week. Saturday is the end of the week. You work six, you rest the seventh, the seventh is Sabbath, Sabbath is a Saturday. That's what the people of God were being called to celebrate. It's a special day where you were to stop working. It was to be a day of rest. It was to be a day of worship. It was to be a day of refreshment in the Lord God. God said there, verse 3, six days shall work be done. But on the seventh day, that's a Sabbath day. It's a day of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You're supposed to gather together. Just like God ceased from work in creation, so you go back to Genesis 1, back to Genesis 2, the creation account, God created six, he rested on that seventh, 
In the same way that God ceased from work, so you shall image him by not working. Do no work. It's a Sabbath to the Lord in your dwelling places. Then, starting in verse 4, you move on to the next. And we see this, that the Passover is being talked about. The Passover is celebrated God delivering Israel from death. So you punch forward into Exodus chapter 12. This is where you see the Passover taking place. But here in Leviticus, it says this. God said, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. Now, if you want to just understand Leviticus 23 well, you can literally cut the chapter almost like right in half. Verses 4 through 22 are talking about a handful of holy days, holidays, and they are to land on the front end of Israel's year, starting with the Passover right here. Starting with the Passover, what does Yahweh say? It was a celebration that was to happen in the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight. It is the Lord's Passover. Remember the Passover celebration originated in Egypt? When God sent the ten plagues on Egypt in order to deliver his people from slavery. And if you remember, the promise in this Passover event that took place back in the book of Exodus, the promise was that the death plague that was coming for all the firstborn sons, and it would be indiscriminate in the houses that it would take place in, death would come for the firstborn son of every house, but it would not come for those who sacrificed a lamb, put its blood around the door frames of their houses. God said back in Exodus 12, the blood of the lamb that was sacrificed for your family, it shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, says God, I will pass over you. Thus, the holiday called Passover. So in the Old Testament, God's people, if you wanted to summarize this whole tenth plague Passover reality, God's people were spared from the plague of death by the blood of that first Passover lamb, and the way God's people were to remember their deliverance from death was by celebrating this Passover meal every year. Once a year, they were to stop and remember how God showed up in a miraculous way and delivered them from death because of the blood sacrifice of another. Then, moving on to verse 6, you see the next feast they were to celebrate. Verse 6, we see that the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it celebrated God delivering Israel from slavery. The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are tied together. These first several feasts are tied together, but the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover were closely tied together. The Passover celebration and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Notice that Unleavened Bread, that feast took place the day right after Passover. Look at verse 6. It was to happen on the 15th day of the same month. So Passover 14th, Unleavened Bread 15th. Back-to-back feast holidays. But notice the difference where the Passover celebration was to be a single-day celebration. This particular feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, was to be a week-long celebration. It says this, it was a It's a week-long celebration where for seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. Now, what's the tie to God's Old Testament people? Remember, this is intimately tied to the whole Passover event. 
God instituted this particular feast when his people were about to exit Egypt. So if you remember, the tenth plague struck. For any who were covered by the blood of the Lamb, death passed over them. It did not strike the people of Israel. It did strike the people of Egypt. And the people of Egypt looked to the people of Israel and said, you need to leave our country now. And they were forced to leave so quickly that it said they didn't even have time to throw leaven. Leaven is just yeast. They didn't even have time to sit and wait for their bread to rise. Their exit and their delivery from slavery was happening so quick. It was so immediate because what the Passover lamb accomplished that they had to tuck up and get on up out of Egypt so quick. And the way they were to remember not only deliverance from death but deliverance from slavery was by celebrating this particular feast every year, the day after Passover, because Passover and this whole unleavened bread idea were intimately intertwined through the death delivery and the slavery delivery that God's people experienced. Go forward to the next one. Look there starting in verse 9. We see the next feast. The next feast is the Feast of first fruits, And the Feast of first fruits celebrated God's gift of the coming harvest. So this feast here in verse 9 called the Feast of first fruits, and the next feast, the next party that we're going to see in verse 15 called the Feast of Weeks, they were actually not necessarily designed to look back to an event of delivery, but to look forward to the promised land and all that God was going to accomplish on their behalf. So the Feast of first fruits celebrated God's gift of the coming harvest. Look starting in verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, Listen, when you come into the land, so there it is, it's looking forward to the promise that God has a land of rest for his people. And I give this land to you and reap its harvest. Here's what you shall do you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. In the main, the foundational idea behind this particular feast centered on this. The promise of things to come. The promise of things to come. And what you understand is that this particular day, this day where you celebrate the Feast of first fruits, it actually takes place in the week-long celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So these first three were intimately tied together. We're celebrating Passover. God delivered us through the blood sacrifice of another. The very next day, what you do is you throw a party, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. God has showed up and delivered us from slavery. And then what it says here is whenever that Feast of Unleavened Bread was celebrated the Sabbath day after. So there was a Sabbath day and the day after you were to throw another party within that week. And that was to be the Feast of first fruits. And the Feast of first fruits was usually about the time of spring. It was about the time when the barley harvest was coming due, and so what the people would do is they would go out and say, we are seeing the first signs of what's to come. A harvest is here in front of us, so we're going to, to reap some of it, and we're going to come, and we're going to wave it 
before the Lord. It's the promise of things to come. A harvest is coming. And we recognize that it all comes from God. So the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were in the springtime when the harvest began to ripen. So during that week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread, the people would take that ripened barley harvest. They would come before the Lord. They would wave it before the Lord in thanks. It was a wave offering. Then they would throw party. They would give more offerings to the Lord as an expression of thanks for the harvest that was going to come. So truly, this like pop, 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 these celebrations, Passover, Unleavened Bread, First fruits, all of it centered on Yahweh, showing how much they were in reliance upon Him. But remember with that this particular one, the whole idea was this. Man, God has showed up, and He is showing, promising that there are greater things to come. That's what it looks like for this particular feast on the front end of the harvest. Well, in the front end of the harvest, if you're going to celebrate what God is going to do, then it's just appropriate to celebrate what God brought to fulfillment in His promise at the end of the harvest, and that's what you see in the last feast that was to take place in the front half of the year. So if you look at verse 15, last holiday that took place in the beginning of Israel's year was the Feast of Weeks. It celebrated God's gift of the harvest. So if first fruits is on the front end, we see the barley, the springtime where we, we see what God has done. He's literally brought up the growth. And then what they would do is they'd go through springtime, they'd go through summer, and then at the end of that couple of months, the wheat would be coming in and they would be ready to reap the entire harvest. What they were to do was not presume that we were the ones who brought this about. They were to presume that it was Yahweh who brought this about. So if the feast of first fruits was a promise of what's to come, then this feast of weeks was a feast time celebration of the promise fulfilled. For this reason, this particular feast, this feast of weeks, is also known as the feast of the harvest. So in your Bible, it will use that term interchangeably if you'll go and read it. Sometimes you'll see feast of weeks, sometimes you see feast of harvest. It's the exact same feast. But later, this particular feast, weeks, harvest, it became known as Pentecost. And the reason why is because the word Pentecost is a Greek word that means 50. The number 50 is Pentecostos. And the reason why this particular feast became known as Pentecost was because, if you notice there in verse 16, this particular feast was to be celebrated 50 days after the feast of first fruits. So Passover celebrated, next day unleavened bread celebrated. And within that week-long celebration of unleavened bread, you would have a Sabbath day and then the very next day you would celebrate the feast of first fruits and then you would count 50 days from the feast of first fruits to the feast of harvest, the feast of weeks, Pentecost, three names for the same event because God has brought the harvest. He kept his promise. He was faithful in doing what he said he would do, and that's worthy of throwing a party. So that is what the Feast of Weeks is about. Now, transition into the back half of Leviticus 23. And what you'll see is some time has gone by. These feasts that we just looked at were to be celebrated on the front part of Israel's year. Everything in the remaining part of Leviticus 23 celebrates 
several feasts that were to take place in the back half of the year, the fall time of the year, all within one month. Notice it was all to take place within the seventh month of their, of their calendar year. So the first one we see in the seventh month in the back end of the year is the Feast of Trumpets. It's verse 23. Feast of Trumpets was a signal of the coming new year. So God said, speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest. It's to be a memorial proclaimed with blasts of trumpets. It's a holy convocation. Now, what you need to know is this, is that to understand what's going on with these feasts, the way we think of a calendar year is not the way God's Old Testament people thought of a calendar year. The timing of the new year, I just said the Feast of Trumpets was a signal of the coming new year. But you read the verse and it says, in the seventh month. And so we're like, they're celebrating like new year, like in July. Like what, like, right? So we're getting a little confused here. But what you need to know is that for us, New Year's, the celebration of it, literally a new year, it falls on what day? It falls on January 1st. That is the new year day for us. It's a once-a-year holiday for us. But for God's people in the Old Testament, they actually had two different celebrations because they had two different calendars. There was sort of a civic calendar, which would probably be similar to the way we think about calendaring. And then there was like a religious calendar, a time of the year where they celebrated certain things based on a separate calendar. They had two different calendars going. So that first calendar with those first feasts we look at would have been more along the lines of the religious New Year. And this Second was a civil new year, these feasts happening in the seventh month. So the Feast of Trumpet celebration before us here in Leviticus 23, it's actually re referring to the civil new year. It was actually more like us on January 1st. We're blasting trumpets out right now because truly the old is out, the new is in. The old is gone, something fresh lies before us, a whole brand new year and what we want to do is gather everyone together and we'll signal the old out, new coming in with a blast of trumpets. It's a call for God's people to come, gather, and start off their new year, not by getting wasted and doing a lot of things you're going to regret, but by coming together and worshiping God. If our times are in His hands, it's worthy of us to say, even my new year is worthy of being submitted to him. And that's what they did with the blast of trumpets. But notice, scroll down to verse 26. The next celebration came immediately 10 days later. It was the Day of Atonement, which celebrated God taking away sin. We're not going to say a lot about this now or later because we preached a whole chapter on it when we did Leviticus 16. But remember, Leviticus 16 covers this holy holiday in detail. But in short, remember that the Day of Atonement was a special day came once a year, and on it, animals were sacrificed in order to make atonement for not only the sins of the priests, but also the sins of the people. This day, what was the promise attached to the Day of Atonement? The promise was that by the blood sacrifice of another, you shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Then came the last holy holiday mentioned in chapter 23, Starts there in verse 33, and it was the Feast of Booths. Sometimes your Bible might call it the Feast of Tabernacles. 
A booth or a tabernacle is basically a mobile tent. And this particular feast celebrated God's provision in the wilderness. Just five days after the Day of Atonement, so trumpets, day one, atonement, day 10, booths, day 15. It was a seven-day celebration where God told his people to go out, build shelters. You need to camp out for a whole week. You're going to live in these mobile tents. Yes, I know you have a, a house that you could be in, but I'm calling you to live in these tents for one week because I want you to remember how you were temporarily moving around throughout the wilderness for 40 years. I don't want you to forget that event. It's really important that you remember that. So while they wandered around in temporary shelters, what we can remember for us and what the Old Testament saints were to remember was this. God never once failed to provide for his people. Remember, their shoes never wore out, clothes never wore out, always had food, always have water, and I don't want you to take these things for granted. I provided for you. So once a year, throw a week-long camping party, build your booth, live in it, so you can remember me, Yahweh how I provided for you. Now, we just walked through these really high, fast, quick, and in a hurry. If you want more information on them, you can come to me at any time, and I'll, I'll try to point you in, in the direction there. You guys can go home and be good Bereans as you learn about these. But now that we've walked through them, perhaps you hear them, and you're finding yourself seriously fighting the urge right now to check out for the remainder of the sermon. You're like, okay, great, you know, because insofar as you can tell, Everything I just said makes for some good trivia if you ever happen to find yourself trying to stump someone about the Feast of Booths, but you're going like, i got to go to work tomorrow, man. Like, I've got troubles, I've got sufferings, I've got trials, I've got hardships, and I'm not quite sure knowing about a seven-day celebration where people are supposed to go have a, a seven-day camping party is going to help me out in that situation. And so before we even get to move forward, you're already checking out because Leviticus 23 seems archaic. It seems useless. It seems like it is the most unhelpful piece of biblical truth I could ever apply to my life. But if you find yourself thinking in this way, then the challenge for you to see that nothing could be further from the truth would actually, I would argue, come from the lips of Jesus himself in Luke chapter 24. Because when you go into Luke chapter 24, you find resurrected Jesus. He's walking on the road to Emmaus. He bumps into two disciples. And then he has another conversation with the other disciples. And in this conversation with Jesus, he looks to his disciples and Luke records for us that Jesus began to explain to him how, explain to these disciples how the law of Moses, Leviticus is that, how the prophets and how the Psalms all orbit around him. So we read the book of Psalms, and we're supposed to recognize that the Psalms point forward to Jesus. You go and you read the prophets, and there's sometimes you're like, that makes sense. That sounds like Jesus. Isaiah 53 is Isaiah 53 for a reason. The suffering servant who's going to be stricken and smitten for, for hours, and he's innocent, and he didn't deserve these things. Like That sounds a lot like Jesus. But then you get to the Habakkuk's. 
And then you get to the Zephaniahs, and you get to the Joels and the Nahums, and you're just like, yeah, I don't know. Like, what? The Obadiah, like, what's going on here? And Jesus says, actually, all these are about me. You go to the law, the law of Moses, Leviticus 23, and laws about feasts and parties and celebrations. Jesus is explaining to them, when you are here, what you need to know is that all of it is about me, and it must be fulfilled, these things that are written about me. In other words, Jesus is giving us Here's your big word for the day, the hermeneutical tool. Hermeneutics is the science of being able to go in and pull out and say, this is how we can interpret this text. Jesus is saying the hermeneutical tool at the center of it all is C-H-R-I-S-T, Christ. He's at the center of it all. So in other words, in the text before us, Paul says in Colossians 2, with regard to festivals and new moons and Sabbath days, Paul says these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So he's even reminding the Colossians that when you are thinking about Sabbath day feasts, celebrations, when you're thinking about new moon, when you're thinking about festivals like Leviticus 23, what you need to recognize is they were shadowy. They point forward to the reality the substance of Christ himself. So truly what we can say is this, and this is second heading of the sermon this morning, that the old covenant celebrations find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. So if we go back through these feasts, armed with the words of Jesus himself from Luke 24, what we recognize and begin to see is that these holidays all of a sudden become less trivial as we see how they connect with the atoning work of Jesus, finding their fulfillment in him all along the way. So now what we can do is go back to the Sabbath day. And what we learn is that in the Sabbath day, we see that Jesus is what? Jesus is our eternal rest. Jesus is our eternal rest. While the Sabbath day was a day of physical rest, it ultimately prefigured the eternal rest that would be found in Jesus, who is the Lord of the Sabbath. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For all who put their faith in Jesus Christ, they experienced the fullness of what the Sabbath day was about. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, very famous. Paul wrote this, It is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works. In other words, all who believe on Jesus get to joyfully and thankfully what? Work for their salvation? No, they get to joyfully and thankfully rest. Rest in what? Rest in the finished work of Jesus. Remember what the book of Hebrews is all about. We have a great high priest who isn't continually, 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 continually working. We have a great high priest who came, did it once, knocked it out, work done. He is now getting to sit at the right hand of the Father because his job, his work of accomplishing the redemption of his people is done. And so now what we are called to do, Hebrews 4, is to strive to enter into that rest. By what? Working for our salvation? No, 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 no by resting in the one who's accomplished our salvation on our behalf. The Sabbath day says, listen, all who believe on Jesus come and rest in his finished work, which he accomplished on the cross. The Sabbath day points forward to the fact that Jesus is our eternal rest. Then you move forward to the Passover. 
I would argue the Passover and the Day of Atonement are probably the two easiest feasts to see how they point forward to Jesus. So in the Passover, we see that Jesus is the Lamb of God whose blood delivers from death. To prepare for the Passover meal, remember what the Israelite families had to do. They killed a Passover lamb, something they did on a Friday, since Passover began at sundown on Friday afternoon. The New Testament fulfillment of Passover is what we would call Good Friday. Whenever we celebrate Good Friday, we are celebrating the truths behind the Passover. Why? Because when Jesus, the Lamb of God, was being sacrificed on the cross, he was doing this in order to take away the sins of the world. That's why the beginning of John's gospel, John pulls no punches, and he comes right out with the words on the lips of John the Baptist saying this, the Jesus that we just talked about in my prologue, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of his world. John is tying into the Passover motif when he says these sorts of things. So just like the Israelites of old, who by faith trusted in God's provision of a blood sacrifice to be delivered from the plague of death. Remember, that's what was going on in the Old Testament. It wasn't like there was just something magic about taking a hyssop branch, plump, plunking it down into a bunch of blood and slapping it over your doorposts. Somehow in the action of that, that is what saved you in that moment. What was going on is this. Those people were exercising faith in God the Redeemer. Everybody, Old or New Testament, is saved by faith in God as their only hope of salvation. So when God said, listen, the way you're not going to be wiped out by death is by trusting in me. That when I say, if you look to the blood and are trusting in the blood, you will be saved from death. That is what brought the Israelites to the place. The exercise of faith in that moment, death passed over them. It's not a hard leap to pull that into the New Testament and see how any man or any woman who places themselves by faith under the covering of Christ's blood can also be delivered from spiritual death. That is how Jesus points to and fulfills everything that we see in the Passover celebration. Truly, he is the blood sacrifice we need. Praise God. Now, Passover, remember, is tied right next to the unleavened bread. So here's how we see the Feast of Unleavened Bread points to Jesus, we see that Jesus delivers us from slavery. So in the Passover, delivery from death, unleavened bread, delivery from slavery, Jesus is the one who delivers us from death and delivers us from slavery. So once delivered by the blood of the Passover lamb, what does Exodus tell us? The Israelites were delivered from slavery. They were no longer held in Egyptian bondage. And the same goes for all who are covered by the blood of 
the Lord Jesus Christ. He delivers from slavery all who put their trust in him. But this isn't some kind of physical slavery. What is this slavery? It's slavery to Satan, slavery to sin, slavery to death. We are no longer held in bondage to these things. Why? Because the blood of the Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, has been tied to our account. And just like we see in the Old Testament, the Passover lamb not only brought that delivery from death, it brings delivery from slavery, same thing in the New Testament. John 8, the Apostle John, we see Jesus saying this, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. But if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus is the greater fulfillment of the feast of unleavened bread because Jesus delivers us from slavery. Truly, by the blood of the Lamb, we have been delivered from slavery to Satan, slavery to sin, and slavery to spiritual death. And in this, Jesus fulfills the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But that's not all. Go forward to the Feast of First Fruits. And what we see is that in the Feast of First Fruits, Jesus is the first fruits of our resurrection. The first fruits of our resurrection. Now, I need you to, to track with me here, okay? If you remember the, what I just said a little while ago, the Feast of first fruits centered on the promise of things to come. So if you're walking with Joe and Susie Israelite and you were going to go celebrate the Feast of first fruits, hey, r- remind me again, like, why are we doing this? Well, God called us to do it. Yes, 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 I understand. But like, like, what's the essence? What's the rhyme? What's the reason? To... It's a promise. Of things to come. We're on the front end of the harvest. God said he would supply every need for us. We're going to bank with all of our might on the promise of things to come. Now, fast forward into the New Testament. Jesus is our Passover lamb. And what we learn from the New Testament is that Jesus, the Passover lamb, was slaughtered on a Friday. So there's Passover. Remember, it was Passover And then it was unleavened bread. And in that week-long celebration, the first day after the Sabbath, in other words, the first day after a Saturday, you would turn around and you would throw that Feast of first fruits party. The New Testament tells us that those three holidays in Jesus' day landed on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Passover, Friday. When the rest of people in Jerusalem were throwing the Passover celebration and slaughtering the lambs, Jesus was being slaughtered on the cross. Passover. His body then went into the grave on that Sabbath Saturday. And so while the people were celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread, celebrating the fact that Yahweh delivers from slavery, Jesus suffered and died proving that He could deliver us from slavery. But the text tells us that the feast of first fruits was to be celebrated on the day after the sabbath sabbath was that saturday that jesus was in the grave well what does jesus do on that day after the sabbath on that sunday it's called easter sunday for a reason because jesus comes blowing up out of the grave defeating satan defeating sin defeating death So on that first Sunday, the day when the people around Israel and in Jerusalem were celebrating the Feast of first fruits, celebrating the promise of things to come, what was happening in a Jerusalem tomb? 
Jesus was resurrecting from the dead. The morning comes, Jesus comes walking out of the grave, and this is why Paul then declares to the Corinthian Christians in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and listen to what he calls Jesus. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There's a reason why we celebrate Jesus on this Sunday, because it is the day we celebrate the fact that Jesus is the first to rise from the dead, and Jesus is alive today and lives as a mighty promise that there is a future harvest of resurrection coming. Him walking out of the grave was, hey, y'all, you need to pay attention. There is a promise of this very thing to come. And God orchestrated the resurrection of Christ to land on the very holiday designed in Israel's calendar that proves that point. We are celebrating the Feast of first fruits today because God said, more is to come. Jesus comes bursting out of the grave. And what is he saying to you and what is he saying to me? What I just did and what happened to me is a promise of resurrection to come. This is going to happen. And that's why you see all throughout the New Testament, Jesus referred to as the firstborn or the first fruits from the dead. And because that's true, roll over into the Feast of Harvest. What we see is this, is that in the Feast of Harvest, or what we can call Pentecost, we see that Jesus actually gives the harvest. Remember, first fruits, harvest to come. Feast of Harvest, the harvest has come. He held true to his promise. And that's what we see in the Feast of Harvest. Jesus is the one who gives the harvest. Now, Pentecost was a harvest festival, as I just said. A celebration that God fulfilled His promise to bring in the harvest. And that's exactly what we see in the book of Acts. You guys remember Acts chapter 2? All of us know the word Pentecost because of Acts chapter 2. Pentecost was a festival day. That's why the Jews of many different tongues and nations or from all around the diaspora, were there in Jerusalem. They were there to celebrate 50 days after all the Passover and unleavened bread events, this particular celebration. But what we also learn from what I just said is Pentecost would have been 50 days from the resurrection of Christ. And so in chapter 2 in the book of Acts, on that 50th day after his resurrection, when Many were gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. What does the Apostle Peter do? He stands up empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he preaches one of the most powerful gospel proclamations centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then what happened? That first Pentecost, there was a harvest of souls. Acts 2.41 says, those who received Peter's word, so they're there. Right? This is post tongues of fire, speaking in languages, that kind of thing. Peter gets up and says, y'all, this is like in fulfillment of what the word of God is talking about. He preaches Christ crucified and resurrected. He says, you need to repent, be baptized, you need to be saved. People heard received his words, were baptized, and, verse 41, there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 
those new Christians were the harvested fruit of the continuing ministry of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Jesus, in his parables, would teach the kingdom of God like a mustard seed. It's small. It's microscopic. That's how it starts out. But then that mustard seed grows into a giant bush and birds from all over the place or animals are going to come and nest in this thing. And that's what we're seeing in, in the fulfillment of the Pentecost act in Acts chapter 2. The kingdom was small, it was microscopic, it was Jesus and 12, and there were some others floating around, but it wasn't like this giant, big, massive movement. But then what happens is Jesus dies and he resurrects a promise of things to come. There is power in this one who was just dead but is now alive, who's defeated Satan, sin, and death, the one who has the power to deliver us from the judgment to come, the wrath to come, the one who can deliver us from slavery, who can bring eternal redemption, the great high priest who by his Blood went into the Holy of Holies, making a way for all of us. And so what happens is 50 days later, the Holy Spirit falls, the kingdom explodes, and the harvest is now continuing to go. We are still living in days where we see the harvest coming. It's the reason why we go to the nations. It's the reason why we go downtown. It's the reason why we go across the street. Why? Because Jesus is the fulfillment of Pentecost. His work is still harvesting souls when Jesus said, pray to the Lord of the harvest so that these fields of people might be reaped and brought into the kingdom, Jesus brought about the very thing that needed to happen in order for the harvest to be able to take place. Crucified, resurrected, and in the newness of life made a way for the harvest to be brought in. But these aren't the only ways Jesus fulfills the feast. Continue down, verse 23, you see the Feast of Trumpets. And we see that the Feast of Trumpets will signal Jesus' return. The Feast of Trumpets is the one feast where you don't see like a direct hard line connection into the New Testament. But what you do see is the imagery of trumpets all throughout the New Testament. Remember what the Feast of Trumpets was in the Old Testament. It was a New Year celebration. Old was out. The new was in. A new year had begun. A new day had dawned. This is the beginning. Blow a trumpet, let's celebrate. And picking up on this imagery of blowing trumpets, the scriptures reveal that the trumpets blown on this day, on this feast day, they were just a shadow of another greater day that is going to come, a day the Bible refers to as the day of the Lord. The prophet Joel warned in Joel 2 verse 1, blow the trumpet. Let all who live in the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. During his ministry, Jesus taught about his eventual return, his second advent. And he said, many will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky. He will come with power. He will come with great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet to gather the elect. Paul picks up on this imagery in the same chapter about his resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. And he says, Paul, on that final day that Jesus is referencing here, those who believe in him will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, and we will be changed. In his kindness, God gave the feast of trumpets to foreshadow that just like it meant a new day has dawned, brand new year, we can sort of look not on just the earthly calendar that we find ourselves in, we can look on the redemption calendar of God and know that there is going to come a day 
when the old is out, the new is in, and the book of Revelation picks up on this language of trumpet, trumpet, trumpet. When you hear those trumpets, that's a day that you need to be prepared for. That's why the hymn writer says, uh, in the song that we were just singing earlier, um, talking about uh, in the Cornerstone song, right? When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. What's that writer doing? He's like, why did he not say, when he shall come with oboe sound, you know, piccolo sound. Like, why is he not doing that? He's picking up on biblical imagery, trumpets. When you hear the heavenly trumpets blasting, what you need to know is the day of the Lord has come. Oh, may I then in him be found. Because judgment's going to come for those who are not found in him. The day of atonement, we see that Jesus takes away sin. That's verse 26. Again, we're not going to belabor this point. You can go back to the sermon on Leviticus 16. But just remember, Jesus fulfills this day and that he is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices for his blood. He did what the blood of bulls and goats could never accomplish, eternal redemption. Proof, go read the book of Hebrews, right? That's, that's the answer to that one right there. And then finally, in the Feast of Booths, what do we see? We see that Jesus provides for us. Jesus provides for us. Just as God provided for his people in the wilderness wanderings, we can trust in Jesus for the same. Do any of you find it hard to trust in Jesus for your daily provision? Yeah? Any of you find it hard to trust in Jesus with your finances? To trust in Jesus with your marriage? To trust in Jesus when temptations come? To trust in Jesus with your doubts? To trust in Jesus when your dreams are crushed? To trust in Jesus when sickness comes? When the cancer report lands? When your parent dies, when the miscarriage comes, when the job gets lost, when your kid disobeys, when the car won't start, when the money's run out, it's tough to trust in Jesus. It's tough. We forget, I forget. In a nanosecond, how much I can trust in Jesus and his provision for everything. Paul says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The Feast of Booths reminds us that Jesus is worthy and capable to be trusted for in everything. Loved ones, what can we learn from all this? Circle back to the very beginning. What can we learn from all this? The answer is this. God is the master of our days. God is the master of our days. We're not the captains of our, of our ships. We're not the masters of our own destiny. Yahweh is. And listen, if Yahweh can set aside certain days of celebration and then with sovereign precision over a thousand years away bring these feasts, bring these Leviticus 23 celebrations to pass all through Christ with such intimate 
intricacy and how they were mapped out over a thousand year period away and bringing it to pass so that everything that we see in Leviticus 23 rolls forward and culminates in perfect fulfillment in the substance of Jesus Christ himself, that I'm telling you our God is fully capable of handling the highs of your days. He's capable of handling the lows of your days. He's capable of handling the cancers and handling the sicknesses and handling the deaths and handling the monies and handling the doubts and handling the fill in the blanks. He's capable. Right? This is a trivial pursuit. I'm not saying all this so we can walk away and go, wow, that Jesus guy, man, that's just a really cool piece of information. He fulfills everything. No, what we're meant to do is go, because this is true, this does mean something for me on Monday. This means tomorrow when I lift my head up off the pillow, I can commit my time to his hands. Because he's not going to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. oh, I'm sorry. I just wasn't prepared for that. You just dropped cancer in my lap. You know, that's a big deal. I wasn't ready for that, Tom. You aren't supposed to do that to me. I'm Yahweh after all. No, no, no. We can come and we can lay these things at his feet and he doesn't start to buckle under the burden. He just doesn't. Why? Because he's capable of handling highs and lows and everything in between. Why? Because he's the master of our days. He's the king of the calendar. He is the sovereign Lord who holds all things in his hand and in his sovereignty. Nothing is beyond the minutia of life. And so when his children come to him and say, Father, I need you to help me with this. I need Christ the first fruit. I need Christ the fulfillment of the unleavened bread. I need Christ my power. Passover lamb. I need Christ who is perfectly capable to provide for me. I need you to help me do this to you. I need you to help me do this. Lay it at your feet. I need you to do that. I need you to help me because the natural proclivity of my heart is to do this. Grab it and hold on to it tight myself and to not give it into the capable hands of the sovereign Lord of time. Old Dutchman Theologian Abraham Kuyper once said, this is surely his most famous quote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Love that quote. I mean, you hear that, you just want to beat your chest and run out the door and share Jesus with somebody, man. Like if Jesus is in charge of this thing, this thing ain't going to fail. Not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. In other words, nothing falls beyond the ownership of Jesus Christ. Christ is sovereign over time. The question is, does the time allotted to me reflect this truth? 86,400 seconds, 1,440 minutes, 24 hours, however you dice it, God's daily gift to us is a new day each and every day. The question is, are you giving it in submission to the sovereign Lord of time? Asking yourself this question, are all my days in submission to my God? All my seconds, all my minutes, all my hours in submission to my God? Does my calendar reflect the lordship of Jesus? Do I eat, drink, sleep, work, rest, celebrate as though all my times are in Yahweh's hands or all my times are in my hands? May a chapter like Leviticus 23 convince us to collapse every 
single moment of every single day into the all-sufficient lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, truly our times are in your hands. Our days are in our, your hands. Our seconds, our minutes, our hours, they're in your hands. Lord, disabuse our hearts and minds of believing the lie, that Edenic lie, that, you know what, I think I can go at this thing called life without God. It's a lie. It's a serpentine lie. Lord, every single one of us here has something in our lives to where we're holding on tight to it just because we're not quite sure Jesus is capable to be trusted with this area. Lord, help us to not say 50% of my life is in submission to him or even 99.99999% help us Lord to be 100 percenters not for our name's sake but for the name and the glory of the king of kings it's in your name Jesus I pray these things amen